listening to the Wrong Side of the Red Line Dallas Stars podcast. Here is your host, Sean Shapiro. Can we actually start this with something positive before we crush everyone's soul with injury talk? It's Halloween, why not? I finally got the microphone to work. Oh, this is great news. I mean... I don't know if it's... I figured out that I have to use it with my microphone, or my um recorder, which I haven't used in probably two and a half years, because I just do everything on my phone now, but apparently... Apple products are horribly cross-compatible with everything, so it, that was kind of the only way around that. So we'll see how this sounds. That's the one. It sounds good to me right now. That's so. that's probably the uh, well, because you're not listening through the microphone. You're listening through my camera or my uh, computer microphone. Okay. Well, I guess I guess we'll have to wait and see then. But on another on another positive note, it's Halloween. Happy Halloween, Ryan. Happy Halloween, everyone. So, what? Uh, how, how are you spending your Halloween? I don't think I'm allowed to say on the camera. Let's just say alcohol is involved. Well, you're 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 above the age of 21 to legally uh, drink libations. I think you're allowed <laughs> to. Uh... We have our our. I can't call it an office party because I don't work in an office. We have our work party tonight, and I have a anatomy lab exam tomorrow so i'm choosing to be a kid over be an adult which i shouldn't do but i'm going to do anyway yeah well i'm also I'm, in my office work party as my individual office of one <laughs> <you can> see, <laughs> that, <laughs> i was gonna say just like is there like an nhl.com gathering where you guys just all magically end up in the same location because that would be kind of cool no i uh I think I think the word for that is the Stanley Cup final. That's when the entire hockey world all converges on one spot. Um, other than that, I think uh, stuck uh, by myself down here. Well, so I will be uh, not watching any games tonight since the NHL did not schedule any game games tonight, which is kind of that odd. was kind of strange. There's also, there's also no World Series game tonight, so you can watch. Try and watch Monday night. Yeah, football. I was going to say you can so watch that. That hasn't been that thrilling lately. You can watch the barn burner between Jay Cutler and Sam Bradford. Well, that'll be fun. <laughs> you can pass out candy to all the little kids coming for trick or treat. I do have candy bars. I do, I do have candy available. Good. At my house here. Good. I have. I have roughly. I bought a, a thirty pack of the uh, like a Costco of like the big size full size candy bars, and I actually have like twenty three left to give out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do the math on the rest of on, on what that means. Well, hopefully, uh, you don't have a busy neighborhood. Well, I don't know how busy a neighborhood I have. I just <laughs> <laughs> that'll be a good that'll be a good litmus test. I, I am deep in the neighborhood. My logic is that how deep my house is in the neighborhood. If a kid's gonna make make this deep of the trek trip, it's reading they deserve a full size candy bar. And plus, it's more fun to eat full size candy bars that get left over. So that's true. Size really is not a. Uh, Fun size just means small. That's not a good word. No, they're not fun at all. They're bite size. There's nothing fun about bite size. Give me a foot long candy bar. I'd call that one fun size. It should be the opposite. It should go from smallest to fun size. That's what it should be. Well, maybe maybe it's uh, they're talking about how fun it is to burn off all the calories you eat from it. It's funner to burn off the calories from the tiny candy bar because that one you can just do walking up and down the stairs ten times. If you eat the whole big candy bar, you have to run like three and a half miles. 
Don't tell me how many miles <laughs> to, uh, to burn off the seven candy bars oh, I've eaten God. from the pack of thirty. <laughs> that's just I don't I can't I can rant. That's not even a rant. That's just it's alarming to think about things like that. But that's way off topic, and we could talk about that forever. So let's just go ahead and start crushing people's souls now <laughs> with the big story of the day. Yeah, well, big story of the day. We're uh, about. Roughly three hours ago, it's Monday afternoon. We report on Mondays if anyone hasn't picked up on that yet. Uh, about three hours ago, Stars made the official announcement that Alex Hemsky um, had surgery this morning to uh, fix a, let me get the exact terminology on the uh, surgery here. Alex had a, had surgery on. This is labor, wasn't it? Was, it served this morning to prepare a labral tear in his hip. Um, I knew it was a hip surgery. I just wanted to make sure I got the medical term right. A labral tear in his hip. Um, this goes back to it was suffered and sustained playing for the Czech Republic in the World Cup. And uh, he had tried to come back on it. We saw him on the 22nd, I believe, against the Columbus Blue Jackets. And he looked good to start the game and then looked like he really pittered off and just lost all his speed as the game went along. So... Five to six months, if you do the math with that, even if it's five months, he's out for the rest of the regular season. So, a guy who's only played one game this season, but take him off the list of guys who may come back. Isn't isn't the labrum the same thing that Nachuskin had a couple off seasons ago, or a couple seasons ago, I don't remember. I mean, it sounded, it was it's a the, similar timetable. It's, it's the same surgery... I believe, and don't hold me to this, I believe it is the same hip surgery that both Nachushkin, uh, that Nichushkin, it's definitely the same surgery Nachushkin had. It's a similar hip surgery to the surgery that Ben had. That's right. He had it in the offseason. It's the surgery that, uh, that John Klingberg had. It's similar to the same hip surgery that prospect Jason Dickinson had. So if you're doing your math, I think that's five. The stars must. The stars now qualify for a free hip surgery based on the group. <laughs> it's almost as if skating at an elite NHL level is bad for your hips. Who knew? Really? No way. <laughs> That's a remarkable coincidence. It is. You, I feel like when you get to that point, especially when it's something ligamentary or muscular like that, where you think maybe they should be doing something different preventatively to maybe... I mean, that's something I could have a better answer for you on in three and a half years as opposed to right now, but the five labrums, that's... Sign me up for that group on. I might need that when I'm older. Yeah. Five labrums sounds like the name of, like, a bad cover band. A five-finger death punch cover band. Five labral tears. Yes. <laughs> The, the, other, the other thing about all the injuries, and I guess the positive thing to take you look at it from the Stars' perspective is you got a pretty good doctor doing it because Ben's come back pretty well. Quinn yes. come back pretty well from the surgery. Nachushkin mm -hmm. uh, didn't play as well, but as, as far as his health was, he mm -hmm. was pretty. He went pretty well. And we'll, we're still to find out on Dickinson, obviously, who's supposed to... Uh, Dickinson's supposed to make his debut uh, with, in the AHL of Texas sometime this week. But... From a story's perspective, you're looking at the long term. Hemsky is uh, 
should be in good hands as far as the surgery goes. Well, now, if you're talking long term, I mean, this is a surgery that very well could close a book on his Dallas Stars career if he doesn't make it back this season. Exactly, and that was what I was going to get to next because Alex Hemsky is not a young player, and he is one of the He's one of those guys that Dallas really liked for this year as a guy who can be that bridge guy, one of those mm -hmm. plug-in-the-pieces guys who could be a guy who could help you win a Stanley Cup. But if he's not back for this year, he's not a guy you build around for the future. Right. I, um, one thing you start to look at is that from the playoffs from last year, he was the veteran on the line with Marcel and Foxa. And... Russell and Fox have played very well together, and uh, they've had a couple different line mates so far this season with Hemsky hurt. Um, and they will, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what the possible long-term solution for that is in a little bit. But the the fact of the matter is, you don't need a veteran presence around Russell and Fox anymore. That's right. what Hemsky provided last year. Every last year was he's the speedy veteran who could who can help uh, these young kids, and now. He's. They don't. They don't need that. They have their own experiences built upon. So, in all in all reality, you could be looking at the end of Hemsky's tenure. In right, and you're also talking about a guy who's making four million this year against the cap, who's put up seventy one points in his two seasons in Dallas. So that's not a very cost beneficial player we're talking about either. So I mean, you know, it's just it's something to think about. I mean. Who knows, maybe he comes back for the playoffs, but at this well, point, with the guys coming up, and plus you're looking at the fact that when he was brought in, he was brought in as a guy who could potentially play a hybrid second, third line wing role, maybe be, you know, like he did last year, place top six with on the wing with Fox and Russell, or slide up and play along. I, I think the intention when they signed him was as a guy to pair with Spezza because of how well they played in, together in Ottawa for the brief yeah, time that, was, that he was that there. Was the thought process. They actually, on the day they actually made the trade first, the Spezza trade, um, in that same conference call, Jim Nill actually announced he signed Hemsky. Right. It was. It was. It looked like a, not a package deal because it wasn't part of the trade, but it looked as close to a cause and effect signing as you could see. Right. And you're, I mean, looking at a guy who's now. What? How old is he going to be next year? Thirty-three, thirty-four. You're talking about a guy who's going to be that old. I think thirty. Yeah, he'll be thirty-four at the start of next year. Who is coming off a pretty serious hip surgery? Who you don't need as a top six guy anymore. So where would he fit? I mean, and that just depends on how the guys, the young guys, develop. But I mean, where would he fit on next year's team? And obviously, there's still seventy-five games for this year, so we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But, right, but theoretically, if he doesn't progress on a quick time frame, we're talking about a guy who very likely could have played his last game in a Stars uniform against Columbus last week. Very possible. And the other thought, too, and this is once again getting way ahead of ourselves, he's not worth protecting in the expansion draft. Either. Exactly. I mean, that's just, you're getting to a point where next year where teams will have to make Teams will, that, once again, this is something that I'm opening a wormhole. We need to go down at another time. But the expansion draft is going to force teams to make decisions on guys that they've been able to put off for years. Yes. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, even if guys don't get taken by Vegas, we'll learn what, how some teams value certain guys in their system. Mm -hmm. 
And we're going to learn a lot of that. And that's, that's, that's a, uh, we'll have to talk about that during the STARS bye week, whenever they have five days off. That, that'll be a good topic for conversation for that day. Our expansion draft episode. Yes, that'll exactly. be fun. So look forward to that at some point. By the way, we are on iTunes now for those who have asked. I said, I said it would happen last week and I lied. Um, but this week it's the, we actually have a RSS feed and everything and, uh, it should be on iTunes now. So. Thanks to everyone who uh, actually listened to this and gave and gave us a little bit of a kick in the ass to actually make this more of an official podcast. So we've, thank you, everyone. We've truly made it. So, um, back to back to the stars and back to where they are right now. You look at they're coming off a loss in Minnesota the other night, which was which is a game where. They didn't get really get the quality chances. Devin Dubnik was very good. You can't take that away at all. Devin Dubnik has been phenomenal now. Devin Dubnik hasn't let up a goal in three games. He was the same NHL of player mind. of the week. But now Dallas comes. Dallas goes into Minnesota, loses four nothing in a game where they didn't really generate too much. They hit a post early in the game, but other than that, they didn't really generate too many chances. And they've lost back to back games to division opponents. Mm-hmm. I was asked this a little bit on Twitter and social media the other day. When is time to hit the panic button? And so, Ryan, when do you hit the panic button? When do you, since when do you break the glass and hit the big red button and uh, and really let everything run wild? Well, this is kind of a complex answer to look at. I truly don't think that you can hit the panic button with this team until they start getting guys back. And if they continue to play like they did in Minnesota, then you can sit there and say, oh, crap, this isn't going how it's supposed to go. So through eight games in the season, it's, I mean, it's still, even, I mean, in under the best case of conditions, I think it'd still be a little bit too early to start panicking. And considering you're missing two full lines of players, that obviously adds a little bit of, not an excuse, but kind of it adds an explanation as to why the season has started this way. But the other way to look at this is once everyone starts getting healthy, you're talking about a team whose margin, let's just assume that, you know, we're looking in the middle of December and this team is still floating a little bit below 500 like they are right now at 3, 4, and 1. You're talking about a team then whose margin for error for the rest of the season is going to be razor thin because you're at that point in the season where, I mean, you're kind of, you know, the games are starting to add up a little bit. You're in the games remaining are obviously conversely going to be winding down. I mean, not winding down, but you're not going to have as many opportunities. And since you, so to speak, had a big poo-poo to start the season, it's going to be a lot harder to absorb a cold streak in the middle of the season than it would have been, for example, last year when they started out 9-2. and two. So while... I think it's still too early to panic. There is definitely a reason to be concerned because even though you have bodies coming, very good players coming back for this team, they're coming back into a situation where they're not going to be able to afford a costly cold streak in the middle of the season because then you're talking about that sort of similar, like a streak kind of like that, that would be severely detrimental to any playoff hopes. So that's kind of, there's two ways to look at that. And I think that with it, combining that together is kind of, I feel like the 
best way to analyze it. Here's here's the here's the reason why you don't need a Titanic button. Yeah, this is, and I'll and I'll use a real life example for this. Do you mm-hmm. remember Vancouver's start to the season? This year? Yes. Yeah, were they four zero and one? Yes. Remember their start to the season? Oh <laughs> yeah. So I have the standings page pulled up right now. So, so that's I know Dallas, where you're going with this. Dallas has played one less game than Vancouver. If the, if Vancouver if Dallas wins in Columbus on Tuesday night, they will be tied with Vancouver in the standings. Yeah. And yeah. so look at it that way. If you if you're looking at this is here's a perfect example of how streaks go up and down. Vancouver's four zero and one had nine points. They played four games since, and they still have nine points. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you know you're at the beginning of the season. Hot and cold streaks are much. They look better or worse than they actually are because there's no previous sample size to kind of balance that out. So, you know, you start off like Edmonton has. They go 7-2-0 to start the season. They're at 14 points. It looks like they're, I mean, the best team in the Pacific right now. That's what it looks like right now. Whereas, you know, they start out around 500 or whatever, and then you're at game 30, and then they go on a 7-2-1 and run over 10 games. It doesn't look as significant as it does at the start of the season because you already have those previous games that, I mean, on their record. So there's not as much... I don't know what the right word would be. There's not as... I can't think of the word right now, so well, you're trying to say else, something. So there's, there's no context for it right now. A 3-4-1 right. stretch right now, just open the season, looks bad because there's nothing else but a 3-4-1 stretch. Right. You could, you could go on a 3-4-1 stretch in the middle of January... And not think twice about it. And and, and yeah, and people may and people may not even think twice about it. You could say, oh well, there's bad luck in this game, bad luck in that game, and okay, they lost four out of their last eight. But you look at okay, well it's a long season. Mm-hmm. That you still need to take that same concept here. Now on the flip side, things can snowball, and that is where you need to be careful and 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 start to piece things back together as the stars. You need to go, yeah, so you got Spezza back the other night. Um, it doesn't look like, Sharp still hasn't skated yet. It doesn't look like, uh, it doesn't look like Eakin's going to be ready for a couple of weeks at least. So the group you have right now is probably going to be your group for the next two, three weeks probably at forward at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharp obviously has the concussion, so that's so hard to predict, and I'm not going to try and predict when he'll be back. Hopefully earlier, hopefully sooner than later, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the key for the stars is you go into Columbus tomorrow night. You win in Columbus tomorrow. Then you have, then you come home and you have two home games this weekend against divisional teams. You have a back, you have back to back games against this weekend against Chicago in the Central Division. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this Thursday against St. Louis, Friday, Saturday against Chicago and Sunday in Chicago. The stars all of a sudden, if you take two out of, if you beat Columbus tomorrow, a team that I think you should beat, frankly, I think the Stars are a better team than Columbus, you should beat Columbus, and you take two out of three against Chicago and St. Louis, you look at that stretch and say, you know what, this is a pretty good team, and look who they're still missing. Right. So, I think, I don't think you hit the panic button yet. I, th- I think once you, I think 15 games is when you start to be allowed to take out the hammer and break the glass. I think, I think that's when you can start to go, and say, okay, well, this is the t- this. Now we need to really assess where we are. We really need to, something. Really needs to change. But 
sample size is so small right now. At least let at least let's at least double the sample size we have right now, and see and see what we have in front of us. Right. We can revisit this again at the end of the Canadian road trip. I feel like at that point we'll be able to make a pretty decent determination. Well, not determination, but I mean we'll be able to. There'll be more games, obviously played, and it'll be a lot well, easier thing, to diagnose. The other thing we have to remember diagnose. too is you look at I'll, I'll count it right now, but in the in the Western Conference, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's six, seven. There's seven teams in the Western Conference right now that have that are separated by two points between seven and nine points. That's there's. If you want to prove you're an elite team, you need to rise above the pack on there. You're in the pack now. How do you get up and how do you get over it? Right. And that's something that the team can do over the next couple of days. And it's something that's it's something that I think comes from an attitude side of things. And it was actually a really interesting point that we got uh, that Lindy Ruff made this morning uh, after the team practice today, where he talked about how this season. Had to be harder. They need to be harder on themselves right now. They need to be more. They need to take things more seriously right away. They need to overreact more. And Lindy pointed out this morning how last year, how last year, if a goalie had a bad game, he pulled him right away. And if he, if there was a bad start to the game, we saw how quick he would shorten the bench and would go to three lines. Mm-hmm. This year, there's been more. There's been more forgiveness. Uh, there's been more. They basically got goalies have. I'm not saying let, neither goalie has been bad. Let's let me actually say that out loud right now. The Stars' goaltending has not been the problem during the start of this season. It's no, been they've had they've, no help. They've had no help. Yes. Uh, so, but the goalies have had chances to play more. Goalies have lost and played the next game. The, he's he's rolled four lines more, and he's had. And, and guys have been, had more opportunities to make mistakes and stay in the lineup. Now we've seen that start to change over the past couple games, but that's something that Roth kind of pointed out this morning that he needs to be tougher on the guys. He needs to create more of an atmosphere where you have to win now. You have to start playing at a higher level, and we'll see how that rubs off on the team over the next couple of days. That could have positive effect, and I mean that's kind of the attitude I think that went into last season when they had nine two and zero start, where mm-hmm. they knew. If they lost, things changed, so they kept winning. Mm. So, so we'll uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. And speaking of being harder on guys, and one thing that I thought was really interesting from this past weekend um, is how rough is how they've started to handle the defenseman's ratchet swift. Uh, Adele's handled carrying eight defensemen. They before the season started. Uh, I thought there was basically three. There's three tiers of defensemen in my mind for the Dallas Stars. There was the Hamleys, uh, Oduya, and Klingberg group that would never sit, no matter how well they played. They were the veterans, and Klingberg not a veteran, but you know what I mean. As in the he's right, yeah, who would who would never sit. And then there was Stephen Johns, who I thought would only sit if he had was looking horrendous because he was right-handed. Mm-hmm. And then you had the group of Ben, uh, Ben, Alexiak, Lindell, and Nemeth that would fight out for two spots. And we talked about the, we talked a lot about before about how carrying, how carrying eight defensemen is a, uh, frankly, it's, it's a really tough spot that Jim Nill has put Lindy Ruff in. It's, there's only so much Lindy Ruff can do when Jim Nill says you're going to carry eight defensemen. Right. Uh, so, 
But those, obviously that tiered system was completely smashed over the past couple days because Johns was scratched in back-to-back games. Hamreese was scratched the other night against Minnesota. And I think it's sending a message, I think it's kind of sending a message by Ruff that whoever's going to play the best is going to be in the lineup. And he actually talked about, he actually talked this morning about how Essa Lindell has done a really nice job lately. And Lindell has played well lately and kind of stepped into a little bit of a bigger role than I thought he would do. You and I both thought Essa Lindell would be in the AHL by this point. Yeah. And he's, and he's played well and he's probably going to be in the lineup again when they play Columbus tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's a message now, there's a message being sent to the defensemen that you actually have to play and earn your spot, it's not going to be based just on who wins or loses the game. I think that was the biggest problem. If you based it just on, if you win, we're not going to change the lineup, I think that was too simple. Right, it doesn't accomplish anything. I think it was too much of a cop-out. Now, I think it's showing us that Ruff is actually going to look at the eight defensemen and say, I'm actually going to judge all eight. And I still, I still doubt that Oduya and Klingberg will ever be a scratch, but he's going to look at it and say, I'm going to still judge all eight, and I'm actually going to look at individual play and not just use the cop out of, well, we won, you're, we won, we'll make a change, we won, we'll stay the same, or we lost, we're going to make a change. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to look at it. But, talking to, I mean, I think any coach, I think one of their favorite coach adages is, depth fosters competition and whether you want to consider carrying eight defensemen a strength or a detriment i mean that's certainly up for debate but the fact of the matter is i think we can safely say at this point that it's not changing anytime soon so eight are staying because lindell has played well enough to stay in the lineup which means eight will stay until until someone gets hurt or if there's a trade which i'm never gonna just Soon trade will happen, but you're sure that you you take phone calls on it. So right, um, right. It's, so it's it's one of those things that you have eight on the roster. Why not maximize the usefulness of that? Because yeah. if you're if because I completely agree with your tiered system. I distinctly remember on the first podcast saying your top four is going to be Oduya, Klingberg, Johns, and Hamhuse, and. I, I mean, we didn't explicitly say it, but I feel like in pointing that out, it was kind of implied that those are four guys that as long as they were healthy, they were going to be in the lineup. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I you mentioned this to me before the podcast. You don't bring in a guy like Dan Hamhus with the intention of playing him in a sort of tuned role out there on defense. You bring him in there to play every single game that he's healthy. But completely, completely. Exactly. I mean, Dan Hamleese was the one you bring in, you sign and say he's going to be an every night defenseman on the left side. Right. He's That's our stabilizing force. But I mean, I like it. I like the the concept of if, you, if you're playing like crap, then you're sitting on the bench the next game. I don't care if you've played 15 games in this league or 600 games in this league. If you're not playing, if you're not, if you're clearly not playing like one of our six best defensemen, you're going to be sitting in the press box. I, I think it sends a great message to the team. I point out something that I, that, that annoys me immensely right now. Jordy Ben, Jordy Ben has earned or disearned, has earned, has earned all praise or, um, has earned, has earned all the playing time. That he has that he has gotten and has nothing to do with his last name. I'd like to just. Oh, I, that I, was I, fun to look at on Twitter the other day. 
I, I, I promise you, I, I promise you that, I promise you that Jordy, Jordy Ben doesn't show up to the rink each day and say to Lindy Ruff, say, hey, look at my last name, and then says, oh, you're right, you're in. <laughs> I promise you that doesn't happen. Jordy Ben has earned, has earned every point, every, every opportunity he's gotten. And, and frankly, I think if he didn't have the same last name, I think we'd give a lot more credit to his, uh, to his backstory from the fact he went, I mean, this guy played in the CHL. I, I don't know the exact number, but not many guys have gone from playing in the CHL to the NHL. So that's my quick aside that Jordy Ben's playing time has nothing to do with the fact that his younger brother is the captain of the team. I actually am interested in this. Oh, wait, that's, see, that's the other, that's the bad thing about the, CHL because it's also Canadian Hockey League as opposed to Central well, Hockey C- League. The CHL doesn't exist anymore. Right. The, the, the ECHL, ECHL doesn't stand for anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. I was, that was always perplexing to me growing up in Vegas and having an ECHL team play there. We're not on the East Coast. But I just well, try. It doesn't stand for anything anymore, even though everyone will call it the Coast. So right. That's, uh, it's a league with an identity crisis in its name. I don't, that's an interesting question how many. Central Hockey League players have made the NHL and played more than one game. Let's throw yeah. that caveat out there. That, are, that aren't goalies. That aren't that's, goalies. That's the big caveat that always changes with things, where guys who go... Sometimes you'll see the goalies who do that just because you'll see goalies in the NHL, like Jonathan Quick spent a year in the ECHL, because how goaltending depth works, if you're the fifth best guy in an organization, you're going to play in the ECHL. Yeah. I mean, even if you're a young guy and you're fear, I mean, even if you're theoretically worse than, well, I don't know. I mean, it's not always like that, but I sometimes, I'm a firm believer. If you hadn't been able to tell by my ranting against eight defensemen for the last three podcasts, I'm more of a, I'm a firm believer in letting people that you're the best way to grow is through actual playing experience. So I'm more of a believer in letting someone play regardless of the level as opposed to sitting on the bench even if it's at a higher level so i'd rather have a guy have a goalie playing the echl every night as opposed to being the backup in the ahl where he's only going to play 15 20 games a year no exactly that's why the uh, that's why the stars had phil derosier play so many games in the echl last year when he could have been at, at a time when he could have been backing up in the ehl so this isn't. I'm never going to find this out. I'm gonna. This is going to have to be a research project for when I'm really bored. Well, you can. Uh, you, I'll, I'll let. I'll let you lead the podcast with that opportunity next week. Okay. If I if I have time this week, I'll try and figure that out. Yeah. So the other thing I want to talk about this week, we circling back, kind of circling back to the Hemsky injury is when we talked about that Fox uh, Russell Hemsky line that used to be there is. What do you do with that group? Because you obviously, I think you want to keep Roussel and Fox together because they both play a similar, they both play a similar style that allows, they both play a similar style that allows them both to kind of grind and bring a spark and energy to the lineup. But who, who do you keep on the wing with? Who do you basically put as the right wing with them? And do you, and, and do you go with a Jason Spezza there, who's played there, played there the last game and the game prior, before he, he missed two games because he was hurt, but the game before that, do you stick with a Spezza on, on the right wing there? Uh, I actually talked to, so I actually talked to Spezza about that this morning and shameless plug here. I got a story coming out about, probably a story out about this that, um, about this as well, as well with Spezza playing on the wing, where 
Spence is a guy who's, as he told me this morning, he's only played about 16, 17 games on the wing in his career. So he's been a center, he's been a center his entire career. And so part of the struggle that he's had recently um, in the last three or four games while playing on the wing is how does he play and find his role? How does he get the puck as much as he's used to as a center? Um, because obviously some centers are very good at getting the puck. And for example, if you look at uh, Chicago, when Patrick Kane's on the ice, he's not a center, but he has the puck more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. So Spezza actually pointed out this morning how he needs to figure out how does he get the puck more as a center? How does he how does he drive the play? Sorry, as a, how does he drive the play as a wing? How does he basically force the play when he's not the guy who is the one down the middle? And I think that's going to be interesting to see how well he actually adapts to this because he's a smart hockey player. It's obviously he's got had a long enough NHL career. He's He's, play, he's been a very good player, but how well can he adapt to being being a wing? Can he can, can he adapt to being a wing full time? That's something that I'm personally interested closely in. For example, when I watched the Columbus game tomorrow night, and now that he's playing his first game back since being healthy, now that he's healthy, how how well can he? How effective can he be on a wing? And I think I think that's something that we'll talk about next week, which will either be will either have an idea that's kind of a success, or that they may need to rethink that. There's a lot more that goes into stuff like this than I think a lot of people realize. Because if you remember back to when Tyler Sagan was still in Boston, part of the big, I don't want to say sales pitch because it's you don't really need to pitch bringing in a potentially elite 21-year-old center onto your roster, but part of the, the spiel that Jim No gave when they brought in Tyler Sagan was they were moving him off of the wing back to their na- his natural center position, and they expected him to be a lot better because of that. Just the whole positioning that goes into center versus wing from just all over the ice is just, it's so different, and especially when you're a guy who's in his mid-30s now, like Spezza, who hasn't played the wing his entire career. This is It's not as easy as snapping your fingers, moving over from you know, to the right side on the face-off circle and then saying, okay, go play hockey. It's it's so much more intricate than that. Well, yeah, and there's, there's more to it than just, I think a lot of people, I think there's a lot of people who think the only difference is, and I know there's a lot of people who understand it as well, but I think there is a large majority of people who think it all, all, all it has to do with is where you line up on the face-off right. and what side of the ice you're on. And there's way more to that. There is, there's, it's, the center has different responsibilities in the defensive zone. Mm-hmm. The carry the how you how the play flows into the zone is different for the position. I think there's there's a lot of little nuanced things that that you'd be surprised. It's that you'd be surprised come with making that switch from center to wing um, for an elite for an elite level player for high. I, and I want to use that caveat for an elite level player. And this is this is not to. To rip on a guy like Adam Cracknell at all, but a guy like Adam Cracknell is going to play the same type of game if he's the center of the wing. Right. He's going to get the puck deep, he's going to grind, and he's going to play that way. Jason Spezza plays a more skilled game, a more finesse game, and he needs to have the puck on his stick. Mm -hmm. That's why it becomes different for him playing center to wing, while for a guy like Adam Cracknell, who's going to be asked to play nine, ten minutes a night, and grind and grind on guys and where other teams down. He can do that from any spot on the ice. Yeah, no, for sure. And it'll be interesting to see if any of those center tendencies kind of, because, you know, you do it for so long, it kind of becomes second nature to see if any of those 
how quickly Spetz is able to buck kind of that natural reflex that comes in your brain that says, okay, you're supposed to do this in this situation, and then, you know, kicks back in and you start to, you know, instead of covering in the defensive zone, covering the defenseman on the, was he playing right wing, so I guess that'd be the left defenseman, creep instead of, you know, instead of covering him, he starts to creep down in the defensive zone to chase after the puck, and then, oh, crap, I'm supposed to be back up top. So it'll be interesting to see if anything like that happens, because obviously, in that particular example, that could have a catastrophic result on the play if you leave the left shot defenseman wide open. So that'll be something to pay attention to for sure. Okay. Oh, I, and I think it'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about all of that, and I'm circling back to old points here, but we'll learn a lot more about the Stars in general um, after this week. I think this weekend sets this the three... There's, I think it's technically three and four nights with St. Louis and Chicago back-to-back. I think we'll learn a lot more about this team with how they respond to recent criticism, how they look after getting a little bit healthier, and how some changes work with the shuffling lines, things like that. So I think this weekend is kind of, to go back to the entire theme of this podcast, this weekend is a huge weekend for the Stars to tell you who they are, and whether or not we should get close to even thinking about hitting the panic button. Yeah, I. Granted, it's kind of. It's still early. Okay, well, it's still early. It's also a cop out to say this after, not even ten games, but it's definitely not a stretch to say that this week's slate of games is not only just the most important of the season to this date, but I think it'll go a long way to determining the trajectory of this season as we close out the 2016 calendar. It's a cop-out, but it's true. I mean, it, it is a cop-out to say, but it's true. It's, you can't, you can't, I mean, you have to agree with that point, where it's, how, if you, if you, say they go and, say they win three out of three in that stretch, all of a sudden you're building and you're rolling on momentum and you're in a really nice spot. Right, especially all, when you can... All three, that's three losses, that's, that, that would be three losses, five straight losses to divisional opponents, and all of a sudden you're looking at at a, at a much deeper hole than you've ever wanted to put yourself in. Right, so, especially when you it, consider it's true. Especially when you consider the week after this is all a stretch of winnable games. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, you you roll into Columbus and then you get St. Louis and Chicago at home before going to Chicago. You roll through those four games with a with a positive record and then suddenly you're going into the Western Canada road trip with a ton of momentum on your side against four games against teams that are all winnable, save aside the fact that Edmonton's playing fantastic to start the season, and Connor McDavid consistently looks like he's playing the NHL on rookie mode, but it's, it's you, you know what I mean, it's all, it can set you in, uh, just talking about how things can snowball, like, I mean, it can roll the other way too, it can have you rolling in a positive direction with a ton of momentum heading into a critical juncture. Let me, let, me, let me bring up, you brought up Edmonton, so let me ask you, what do you think of Edmonton? Is it, I mean, obviously 7-2, and two, winning 7 out of every 9 games is not sustainable. Let's just, mm-hmm. let's squash that right now, but how good is how good is this Edmonton team? Because to me, both right now, it's, they're, they're fun to watch, they're young, they're what they've, they're, they're fun to watch and they're actually winning. They've always been fun to watch because they would either let up a lot of goals or score a lot of goals. They're always fun to watch in the past, but they're actually winning games now. Um, what do you think the seven team actually is now? Are they are they a are they a playoff team? Are they what the seven and two 
Who's the start of the season? What do you think? I mean, I think they're a playoff team mostly because the Pacific Division is hot garbage, really. I mean, to put it nicely, I mean, that's not really putting it nicely. That's kind of mean, actually. But, I mean, you know, what? who did they have to climb? They finished last in their division last year. They had to climb everyone. What am I talking about? I mean, you look at their division. I mean, Arizona's no good. I mean, they're young and they're Arizona, going to be exciting Arizona this year. Would be, Arizona is a very good AHL team with Mike Smith and goal. Yeah, I, pretty much. Is. Pretty much, yeah. And I mean... My God, Mike Smith has fallen off fast. But Arizona's goaltending is awful. I Granted, I didn't say Mike Smith was good or Mike Smith was right. bad. Mike Smith. Right. Mike Smith. <laughs> right. I mean, you could argue, yeah, whatever. That's a, another wormhole. But I mean, you yeah, know, so La- Los Angeles is a good team who, I mean, losing Lucic for better. I mean, it left a hole in the lineup. And I mean, then you talk about losing Jonathan Quick, and now they have. Didn't I, I saw something on Twitter that isn't their AHL team like having open tryouts for goaltending, or is it their ECHL team? For oh, okay. well, the uh, the Kings. That's uh, that was that was a uh, that was Mike Stuthers, who is the coach of the Ontario Reign, who was a great quote, by the way. If you ever get a chance to interview Mike Stuthers, completely do it. Um, who basically he said they were. Uh, he made a, he made the quip after their last game on Sunday down in San Antonio that they were going to have open tryouts for goalies because not only do they have, so the Kings goaltending situation right now is as everyone knows, Jonathan Quick got hurt. Then Jeff Zakoff got hurt. So Peter Budai and Jack Campbell, who, uh, Peter Budai and Jack Campbell are the goalies for the Kings right now. And the goalies for the Ontario Reign were Jonah and Lou. Who is the, uh, whose father happens to be the goaltending coach for the, the both developmental goalie coach for Ontario. And, um, I, sorry, I think it's Flynn was, I can't remember his first name, but the other goalie's name was Flynn. Um, so then this weekend, Amu gets hurt and Flynn has get, and Flynn gets, and so Flynn comes in and gets the start. Um, and so the goal, the older Amu, who is the uh, goaltending development coach, once again has to dress as a backup for the second time this season. Um, and you have to remember, the Kings did sign Anders Lindbach about four or five days ago, but his visa still hasn't gone through yet. So they have Anders Lindbach, but he can't play. So that's the Kings goaltending situation. So if, if, if you want to take the stars forwards in the Kings goalie situation... I'm trying to figure out which team's defense would fit our all-injured team right now. I'm trying to think about that. There's a lot of bad juju in that group. Yeah. But you could you could make an all-injured team if you took the Stars forwards. And you could put together a really damn good team, actually, if you took the Stars injured forwards and the Kings goaltending, injured goaltenders, and started from there and started building out. You could build a really damn good team of injured players. I bet that team would qualify for the playoffs this year. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, getting back to the Pacific Division. Mm-hmm. I hate that Anaheim brought Randy Carlisle back. I think, I just personally feel like that was a backwards move. And even with Hampus Lindholm finally re-signing and them not having to move Cam Fowler because Simone Dupre, it sounds like he's going to be done for a significant amount of time. I just, I, they're not the same that, the same team that they were last year under Bruce Boudreaux. So, I mean, you're looking at, I mean, a team there that is, 
I don't want to say even with fire Boudreaux, fire Boudreaux to hire Randy Carlisle. No, that's my. I I understand fire. I don't even understand firing Boudreaux, but I understand. I understand firing Boudreaux to an extent. It's making a change just for the sake of making a change. That's that's what that was, and I don't like it at all. But but I mean, then you look at the rest of the division. I mean, Vancouver is Vancouver. They're perpetually stuck in a cycle where. They want to try to compete because they want to get one more run out of the Sedins before they uh, they retire, and not it's a cycle where they're good but not good enough. So they're always circling between, you know, seventh and tenth in the West, and then you have San Jose, who obviously represented the West in the Stanley Cup Final this year, and once again looks pretty good this year. Who is conversely. Brent Burns is a free agent after this year. Joe Thornton's getting up there in years. Patrick Marlowe's getting up there in years. This is a team that might, this might be its last hurrah with its current group. So you can bet that Doug Wilson, assuming, I don't know what their cap situation looks like off the top of my head, assuming that they can continue to play the way that they are and assuming that they have cap space, there's probably, they're probably going to be a team that's going to be looking to add another piece eventually at some point. So, I mean, if you look, you look at the Pacific Division right now, it's San Jose. And I mean, it's Edmonton, really. Edmonton stepped up to fill that void. Ever, no one else in this division has stepped up and or stood out in any sort of positive way. So I mean, obviously, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, seven and two over nine games, doing that every nine game stretch is obviously unsustainable. I mean, it's hard to say Cam Talbot is playing out of his mind right now. He kind of is, and will do be do. Wow, I don't know what just happened in my brain on that. He will be due for some sort of regression at some point, but at two or five goals against at nine thirty six save percent, it's not he's not playing that much above his head from a career perspective. Perspective, I mean, granted, you're only Cam Talbot was always a guy with small sample size in general. Right. So biggest question about right. So you're talking about a guy who's only played 122 games in his career, but his career save percent is nine twenty five. Yes, and you you know you're also talking about a guy who played behind the Rangers' defense that has helped make. I mean, not to take anything at all away from Henrik Lundqvist, who, when it's all said and done, is going to be one of the five to seven best goalies in NHL history. But you're talking about a defensive system that, for a long time, helped him helped him to look really, really, really good. So Henrik Lundqvist, on a quick aside, may isn't maybe in a position to be. One of the best goalies in NHL history to never win a Stanley Cup. Yeah. Yeah, that's not wrong either. Yeah. But, so, I mean, you know, how much of that is, I mean, I mean, even Cam's last, numbers last year weren't awful. I mean, he had 917 save percent last year and behind a team that was terrible. Well, let's, let me let me say the one thing that, as a team that you and I have both seen play before, and I'm about to dig into it, I know I'm about to lose some people when I refer to college hockey, but Cam Talbot had a 925 save percentage in his last year at Alabama Huntsville. And that was the 2009-2010 season Alabama Huntsville. And that was a god-awful hockey team. I'm not a, I'm not allowed to say bad anything bad about Alabama Huntsville because I'm pretty sure the entire city of Huntsville still hates me because I trashed on them pretty bad a couple years ago and I pissed off a lot of people. So I don't think I'm allowed to say anything bad about them anymore, but that's not an inaccurate statement. That's all I'll say about that. I'll just, I'll just point out that. I mean, it's. I think 
Talbot's a good goalie, but it's I am interested to see what he can do as things continue as they continue to play in a style where the Oilers are gonna are gonna score a lot and they're gonna we'll rely on McDavid a lot. Let's see who else steps up and what, what they can do. Now, God is I'm there really interested to see him I don't I'm not sure when they come to Dallas it's for the first time. I'm interested to see him in person. Here's a question for you. Is there a player in the NHL that is more indispensable to his team than Connor McDavid? Oh. Because what would the Oilers be this year without Connor McDavid? At this point this season, I think you have to be. I think you're right about that. Uh, I think. Because I mean, we look, look at the standings real quick. Because I mean, as good as Crosby is. Penguins have he missed the first however many games of the season and they're at first in their division. I mean, I guess you could argue Carey Price because you saw how the Habs started last year and then he got hurt and what happened to them. Yeah, but then, then Al Montoya came in and played really well with him being out the start of this year. I, my, my one my one counter my one person who would be up there um, would be uh, Corey Schneider with New Jersey. Yeah, that's fair. That, that's that would be the. Uh, okay, let me amend my question. Is there one non-goalie as indispensable to his team? Indispens and using the word indispensable. Well, that requires him to be a good team. Um, I think when he's playing well, Kopitar is on that level for the Kings. Because it's so interesting to think about. Because I mean, as we just mentioned, you know, the start of the season without Crosby and they didn't fall apart. Last year, Steven Stamkos missed a good chunk of the end of the season. I mean, he missed almost the all but the last game of the Stanley Cup final for Tampa Bay, and they still made it there. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Ovechkin. I think his team gets better defensively when he's out. Though. Right, but you're also talking about a guy who could end up being the most prolific goal scorer in NHL history. I don't know that he's ever missed a significant chunk of games in his career, though, so I don't know. I don't really think we have no, he has statistics he's, he's, he's to. Very healthy. He's big as hell. No one wants to hit him. Mm-hmm. I. This is another interesting question to think about. This requires this requires discussion on a larger forum than we provide. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, what? we'll think, we'll we'll take that question. We'll think about it going into this week. Question uh, of the day. Now. Last thing then, and then the last thing before we go, I, I just wanted to, uh, we didn't mention him this week, and he's already back in the AHL, but I just wanted to maybe mention something about uh, Justin Dowling playing for Dallas, playing two NHL games this past week. I've never, not, uh, it, it was kind of fun to see, um, kind of fun to see him work his way up and play his NHL games because undrafted guy out of the ECHL, a guy who, was undrafted the w, uh, undrafted out of the WHL, had a hard time finding an initial ECHL job, caught on with Texas and earned his first NHL job. And so just kind of wanted to end the podcast with kind of mentioning that to see a guy work from there and get two NHL games and maybe lay the groundwork to be another call up this season or possibly get an NHL job next season. I think that's, uh, that's kind of, that was kind of cool to see. And, uh, so we're ending on a positive note. And with that, uh, we'll be back next week. There'll be lots to talk about, I'm sure. 
Have a happy Halloween, everyone.